0: The following is a conversation with Miss Linda Moulton-Howe. I want to say that this is one of the most significantly, prominently, and informatively insightful discussions I've ever had. Mainly because, reading many scientific, whether theoretical or practical, academic papers, believe it or not folks, a good chunk of what's discussed here Is possible in my humble perspective now with that said i also keep quite an open mind to be fair but i want to thank miss uh, Howe for coming on the show and for being able to lay out in extreme detail the intricacies pertaining to all of this now i do want to say very prominently and respectfully for those that are interested in delving into much more of the scientific whether esoteric or nuts and bolts perspective of these topics, please consider checking out patreon.com/generation Z as we have different membership tiers, we do weekly group zoom calls actually more than one time per week, two to three times per week. we delve into different scientific different excuse me scientific angles and perspectives in addition to many spiritual and what some may consider woo topics. However, I feel all slices of the metaphorical pie or puzzle must be covered. So without further ado, thank you so very kindly, folks, for for those that do support the show, whether it's simply by subscribing on YouTube, or more importantly, by allowing me to do this full-time via Patreon.com slash Generation Z. Enjoy. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone. I am extremely... Uh, honored, g- uh, grateful, humbled to have with us today the one and only, the a legend in, in my books and in many other people's books, Linda Moulton Howe. Now, before we introduce Linda, I do want to say that Linda is a graduate of Stanford University with a master's degree in communication. She has devoted her documentary film, television, radio, web, writing, and reporting career to productions concerning science, medicine, the environment and earth mysteries. I would also like to add as a personal note I don't think I would be be here today with this channel if it wasn't for the vast contributions that looking back at some of my uh, findings on the internet turns out to actually have actually have come from Linda so as I want to thank you for that as well. Uh, with that said Linda produces and hosts a weekly earth files YouTube channel broadcast that has over 200,000 subscribers. I just checked recently I think 250 is, is safe to say um, she's also a contributing reporter for Ancient Aliens on the History Channel produced by Prometheus Studios in LA since 2006. Uh, she's also reporter and editor of the award-winning science, environment, and Real X-Files news website, earthfiles.com, that contains some 3,000 in-depth reports with thousands of images, maps, documents, and illustrations. Now, and finally, in addition to her award-winning EarthFiles news website, weekly, Earth Files broadcasts and TV series, Linda's investigative reporting for television has received local, national, and international awards, including three regional Emmys, a national Emmy nomination, and she was an honored producer for medical and science programming in a WCVB-TV, ABC, Boston Station Peabody Award, in addition to so many other things uh it's i don't i mean no disrespect i just don't want to uh, take up too much time so without further ado thank you so very much for coming on linda and how are you today
1: well thank you very much for giving a background because often i think that people uh when they hear ufos and ets they think that it is some kind of superficial people running for something on the web Well, I got into this 43 years ago, as director of special projects at the CBS station in Denver. And it was headlines in two major newspapers, the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News, saying the return of bloodless trackless animal mutilations. And it was that the return. What are they talking about? I had been in Boston and LA and doing hard uh, environmental work, and I did not know what they were talking about. And that was one of the stories that it took a hold of me, and it took a hold of my entire life, which I didn't realize at the time. But it is an example of hard evidentiary Uh, you've got matters that you can go out and investigate. And that's what I always have done in my work, everybody who has ever worked and all of the work that has been broadcast. The pressure of fact is what has guided me. And in that particular case, within two weeks of those headlines, I had called around to sheriff's offices. And the sheriffs all said, because I everybody knew me, I was doing all this work in Denver and it was always being written up in the newspapers. So the uh, sheriffs knew me when I called them and they said, you need to talk with Sheriff Tex Graves up in uh, Sterling, Colorado, because he's been dealing with these bloodless, trackless mutilations since the early 70s. I also learned that others have been reported in the 60s and even the 50s. But it was that drive from Denver, Colorado, to Sterling, two and a half hours by car. Complete blank slate outside of the question, what did they mean? The return of bloodless, trackless animal mutilations.
0: They were always there.
1: And after two hours with Tex Graves, who pulled out 168 Polaroid photographs, he, as sheriff of Logan County had taken himself. And I asked him, may I lay out your Polaroids on the floor? And he let me so I could look at a timeline. And then he went with me and that's how I interviewed him about all of these mutilations. And there was one that I would like to share with you because in a way it sums up the kind of high strangeness that I was hitting in the very first discussion with the sheriff. It had a black and white steer estimated about 1700 pounds. It was lying with the front legs and the back legs like this straight, absolutely straight. The uh, hoofs were perfectly together, like they were glued and around in in the animal. It was mostly brown dust dirt with a little bit of grass. There was not a single track around this body, including the animal's own body tracks, nothing. And I'm hitting this cold. And I said to Sheriff Tex Graves, tell me, how is this possible? This animal is lying and it had an ear missing, eye missing, tongue, jaw, genitals, and rectum cord out. That was the standard in all of these animals. Right. And this strange, strange thing outside of no tracks. The head was in a hole that was approximately 10 inches in diameter. He measured it. He told me he always kept a a measure with him in his pocket. He measured the hole eight inches deep. So the animal's head is in this hole, the perfect legs, not a single track. And Sheriff Tex Graves said, the deputy and I stood there. We decided that it was so incredible. We couldn't understand what we were looking at. Let's go 12 feet out. Let's take photos. Let's not do anything in the scene. And they walked around 12 feet out. And that's where he, how he got the Polaroids. And then he said, when we had covered it, we went up to the head and I measured that hole and we looked at each other, and we both said to each other, something paralyzed this animal and held it down on this ground and then took out the tongue, the jaw flesh, the eye, the genitals, and the rectum. At that point, in that first discussion, hearing those words for the first time in my life, I began to ask the sheriff How many cases like this? Oh, said more than 200. I said, this is the first time I've heard about it. He said, yeah, well, the government doesn't want any of us talking about it. And he said, Linda, let me save you some time. The perpetrators of these bloodless, trackless animal mutilations are creatures from outer space. And I can still feel it right now that as he said those words my entire body felt like it was hit with an electric shock as a kid my brother and i would touch the electric wire in my dad's garden it was exactly like that but my whole body and i did not know at that moment in 1979 september that for the next 43 years to this day as i'm speaking to you that the goal to find out who or what was killing and mutilating these animals without any evidentiary tracks, and being able to do what was at that particular animal, just writ large into 1000s and 1000s around the world. That the sheriff, Linda, let me save you some time. The perpetrators are creatures from outer space. Today in 2022, As far as I know, it is a collection of a specific chemical for some of the gray type extraterrestrials who need a very specific. It's either a protein or another chemical from Earth as I've been explained to me because they have been actively involved in so much genetic manipulation on this planet that now they have all of these, what would be in the AI, cyborg, robot, artificial intelligence category, and that they need something from this planet and that. Now this is, I'm gonna make this sentence without having documents to prove it. But I think circumstantially that it is fair to say that in 1954 President Dwight Eisenhower met in three different meetings with different ETs and he signed at least one treaty. He was president of the United States in 1954 and therefore I won't be surprised if it is revealed and we get documents with his signature on all three treaties because they're supposed to be three. But those are the secrets that our government since World War II have worked so hard that none of this existed. Anybody who reported it would be slammed. They would not not be allowed to stay in the service of whether it was intel or military. Uh, The public has uh, had, it's called, uh, getting social conditioning of a public used to the fact that if you utter the word UFO, you will be uh, handled with great sarcasm. Right. You will be ridiculed. And they started doing that uh, at, during World War II in the military and by the 50s, people everywhere were afraid to talk about UFOs and ETs, even if a sheriff Tex Graves said, I've talked to a rancher and he saw a being that was not human And it was out in the pasture where he found an animal, but he will not talk. And this is one piece, one more. This is really important. Sheriff Tex Graves, on that day in September of 1979, he said perhaps the most important thing that he had done in the first investigations is that he had been exposed to bloodless, trackless animal mutilations going back to 70, 71. But it was around the year 72, he got a call and he said, I decided I would get in touch with the local veterinarian that I work with and say, would you come with me? I don't want to waste time. I want you to do the necropsy in the field. I don't want to wait to get it to a lab. Let's get this as fresh as possible. Right. So he said they got there in the late afternoon. The vet starts opening the necropsy. They have to open the chest, the abdomen. That look for organs, and he said, he was standing. He was watching the vet, and all of a sudden the vet looked up at him, and said, "Sheriff, I want you to look at this." And the sheriff bent over, and the vet had this index finger on his right hand, which were gloved. They were white gloves, and and the sheriff could see a red something over the index finger as the vet said, I want you to look at this. This is a pericardium. This pericardium should be surrounding this animal's heart. Sheriff, look. There's no heart. There should be a nine by 11 by 12 approximately huge heart in here with this pericardium surrounding that heart. Sheriff there's no blood there's no fluid, I cannot find any clotted blood in any of the arterial or beta systems that should be leading from the heart into the lungs into this animal there's nothing in here. It is dry and this pericardium was collapsed on the floor of this chest dry and sheriff what I have been feeling for is the hole that the heart would have come out of. And there is no cut. There's no hole in this pericardium. It is entirely whole. That means that this heart was taken out of this animal through a pericardium that left no evidence and through the chest without any surgical excision. And at that point, the sheriff turned to me, he said, and that vet said to me, don't you ever call me out. On another one, because I'm not going to stand in front of a bank of reporters and say what happened to this animal is impossible.
0: Wow. Well, first off, let me thank you so much for that for that response it, incredibly in depth and I appreciate that. I know what my audience will as well. Um I did want to ask as well pertaining to this Linda. Um Mr. a gentleman by the name of uh, I believe he's passed away now, Mr. Bill Uhouse went on video testimony claiming that to his knowledge a mechanical engineer if I'm not mistaken, to his knowledge um the the cattle mutilations not entirely but were largely, and maybe he was incorrect, but were largely for, and for, to the audience that will be listening or watching, forgive me for the explicitness here, but it was for some of these greys to be able to eat, if you will, or nutrition. They would take the, the, the blood and allegedly put it on their, their body, so to speak, and and this is what Mr. U-House claimed as well. Something to do with oxidizing the the blood of the cows. Are Have you come across anything like this, or am I completely incorrect here?
1: There were people who reported something about uh, the beings, some version of the gray beings being immersed in a organ blood bath. That didn't come into my investigation with tremendous details until uh, it was a Cimarron New Mexico case. Uh, It was an investigation by Leo Sprinkle, who was then Director of Counseling and Testing at the University of Wyoming. And he did some of the best work with abductees and investigations and worked with me the entire time that I was producing a strange harvest. And why this is important is that Leo Sprinkle at the University of Wyoming got a call from the, uh, I believe it was the APRO people and uh, Coral and Jim Lorenzen. And they had a case out of Cimarron where a mother with her five-year-old son was traveling on a road in the late afternoon. And they heard a scream, and they didn't know what the scream was. And she pulled the car over to the side of the road. Then she could see in the direction from which the scream came, another scream, and she realized that what she and her son are looking at is a a cow that is down on the ground. It is screaming. They now, she said in the hypnosis, in pain, the cow was screaming in pain. And there were two, and that's the issue, were they two humanoids in plaid jackets was one report. Another was that they might have been grays in some kind of garment. That part is not clear, but that two somethings were there in that pasture. and this woman, without knowing anything else, pulled the car over because of the screen. Right. Then, very quickly, after the stop, she and her son see this huge craft it's lowering, it's round, it's silver. And the next thing she knows, bang, she's in some place, she doesn't know where her son is, it leads to a very long, involved, incredible story, in which I can report something to you today for the first time, because it's only recently from a retiree from the Pentagon, who sought me out, and said, Linda, your reporting is remarkably accurate, for which I'm very grateful. And he said, I want you to know that I have read and went through an Alien Harvest and Glimpses, volume one and two. And he said, you have a transcript of a mother and a son out of Cimarron, New Mexico. And he said, the description that she gives of the beings being tall and yellow, not gray, not white, not pink, not green, yellow. Wearing not the, like some of these uniforms would be like you would think of a pilot who's got a jumpsuit on, right? not not that either. He said her description of a flowing like a gown all the way to the floor, white, yellow skin seven to eight feet tall he said that's not a tall white no he said linda that is one of the clearest descriptions of what i know to be a hybrid this is the first time that i have ever had anybody who had really serious pentagon long time who said this is what this is and they know the details who's hybrid are Oh, many different types and levels. And that's where the complexities since World War II, our government knew for sure. As Hitler in World War II was talking about that he was working with uh, ETs from Aldebaran, and that his goal as the Fuhrer of Germany is that he was going to replace all of the superstructure of the planet with blonde, blue-eyed ETs from Aldebaran. Those were in secret meetings, that was published. And and then look at World War II and, and those that were killed because Hitler felt that he was under some direction. And then you jump to these many years later and Cimarron took place in 19, I think it was 80, that it's the perhaps the same types that are in conflict today as we're in conflict in World War II. And what I'm leading to is an analyst for the Defense Intelligence Agency who sought me out, like this man recently sought me out, He sought me out in uh, in 1999. It took a month to put the meeting together. And it ended up that we were in the middle of December, sort of he wanted the holidays to cover up what he was doing, and he didn't want anybody to know where we were. And he chose the site. It is still to this day, the most extraordinary seven hours that I have ever had with anybody telling me the big picture of what has been happening. And he said, this is a quote from this man and this incredible December 1999 meeting that took a month with a man from the World Bank interfacing between us. He said, World War II Was an extraterrestrial war fought through human bodies. If Hitler was obsessed with blue-eyed blondes and we as a population today know about greys, artificial, a few biological, we know about tall whites, we know about blue-eyed, blonde Nordics, that those Nordics and the tall whites are supposed to be our allies were the blue-eyed blonde Aldebarons a different sect? And if World War II was an extraterrestrial war fought through human bodies, then World War II is still being carried on today.
0: I want to thank want you to... so very much for um, actually bringing this up because this was one of the questions I had that uh, one of our uh, members wanted to ask too and they actually quoted your uh, Earth Files uh, line here and I quote, uh, what bothers me about this paragraph is that the DIA analyst retiring in December 1999 who organized a meeting with me through a World Bank associate stressed that his work was to analyze and monitor the competing and in-conflict ET species that have been." fighting uh, over control of Earth, not for 5,000 years, but for at least 270 million years. And so, uh, actually, I must say, this is not a question of my own. This is of someone that, uh, a Patreon member of ours that asked this. Um, And Neil asks, if they've been fighting for over 270 million years, Linda, uh, to your knowledge, what is our role, if any, in this particular war? Do we have any uh, uh, control over the destiny of our uh species by chance or to your knowledge
1: excellent questions i'm so glad you are doing homework Uh, this is the the way it should be thank you the complexity of what i know today is overwhelming and that relates to the heart of your question I think that there are allyships with human, and that I do think that the tall whites have a vested interest, possibly for reasons unknown, but that they have a vested interest in seeing homo sapiens sapiens survive. And thank God they do. Mm -hmm. I have had two sources in the last four years, probably, who have said if the tall whites were not dealing with earth and all of the various threats and levels humanity would have been gone a long time ago and i'm not saying that dramatically i'm just saying that the they're reinforcing that the tall whites have played a pivotal role with the tall whites the nordics the nordics are have apparently had more interaction with human evolution on the earth and the tall whites have come into the mix and that the the Nordics, that description of blue-eyed, blonde-haired. How do we know what is a Nordic that is on our side that might not be and could be related to the complexity of World War II. Right. And what I'm trying to suggest is that it is so complex and it is not something that is here now. This has been going on for a very long time in Earth's history. And then outside of the Nordics and the tall whites, you've got the ancient primordial greys, which I have been told that the tall ones that are biological, thin, tall, they look very ancient, their skin sags. Right. That they are approximately 1.8, perhaps 2 billion years. Think about Earth. We're in a solar system that is 4.6 billion. If they already are about, a two-billion-year life form, Homo sapiens sapien, you, me, and the current vintage of primate standing up—it's only forty-five thousand years. You see these headlines that come in anthropology: "Oh, they found a new example of uh, humans hundred and thirty-seven thousand years ago." Yep. No, yep. it's it's the it's evolving primates that have DNA relationships. But Homo sapiens sapien, this current model, you, me and the world, it goes back 45,000 years to the crossfade with Neanderthals. Why was there a crossfade with Neanderthals? The Neanderthals had a bigger uh, cubic volume brain. It's very clear to anthropologists that they found rectangles with bones under and that on top were pollen that meant that those pollen grains, that the Neanderthal had some compassion, some relationship with those that died. They were putting flowers on those graves. Why were they taken out? And Homo sapiens sapiens chromonion, why did we come in and replace them? That is to me also another fundamental mystery about what is it that humanity, this particular we'll say evolutionary step, what is it that we are either providing or we are supposed to have had a relationship with the earth as the Bible opens up? If you just look at it as history, humans were to take care of the earth. That was their designated job. Right. Garden of Eden. But who was in the Garden of Eden that uh, Adam and Eve were supposed to take care of? vipers a viper is a snake a snake is a reptile if we take it literally or figuratively it means in literature or the outside objective world that everything describes at the time that humanity first appeared there were already reptiles right and that relates to what some people in military intel and aerospace bring up. There are conflicts. This is not a peaceful situation. And that the reptilian type may actually have an argument when they say earth is theirs, that they were here first. But when you come to 20 22. And the relationship of five races competing with each other and fighting politically and standoffs. And there isn't a homo sapien sapien group hug. There's all kinds of fractions and fighting. And, And you look at the lens that we are in right now. And then you add the possibility That there are reptilians who live deep under the surface of the earth and have been there for millions and millions of years and that they claim earth as theirs while the nordics the tall whites the oranges the teal blues and on and on the list is huge the tall grays there appear through the abductees that this gets down to the core of all of the different fights that in a way The open of Genesis in the Bible lists it out. Adam and Eve are the first humans on earth, but already there to teach them is the viper. viper. And what are humans told that their job is to do is to take care of the garden. Right. And the rest of it that unfolds is humans get tempted away. The, vi- the viper or, or the reptiles uh, use deception. Uh, and then maybe you get to a point where other beings in other systems come to Earth because there is something about this planet. Something about the watery two thirds and the one third land that maybe this really is like a laboratory that this is a planet that is conducive for all kinds of life experiments. And uh, last year, I had a deep discussion with somebody who had been exposed to, we understand that what the tall whites and the Nordics and the grays and the teals and all of these different, what they value is that earth is a laboratory to them. And that if you go back 65 million years, when the earth was what, dominated by dinosaurs, the whole planet was dominated by dinosaurs. That in and of itself may have been why the reptilians say earth is theirs. Maybe they started it, maybe they were responsible. And then others come and they want to use laboratory earth and they make all of their different life forms. And this is, becomes the truth's picture is earth is a laboratory, but when you have species that make life and then they wanna claim the earth as theirs, automatically conflict.
0: Right, now with that said, if I may ask, uh, over the span of your entire career of investigating um, all of this, which again, I'm very grateful for, If I may ask, just to the recollection of your memory, Linda, which um, insiders within military intelligence, aerospace, you name it, have said to you, uh, for example, Linda, this particular species is the worst to deal with. And then which ones have said to you, Linda, this particular species are the kindest or most benevolent to deal with? Uh,
1: Military aerospace category. For uh going back three years ago, uh, the first detail with tremendous details, um, that the the big threat to Earth now and in the past is a group called the Tronoloids. And that that list was presented to Ronald Reagan March 6th to 8th, 1981 by William Casey, then head of the CIA with DIA, NSA, all there. And they went through presenting to Ronald Reagan, and I've heard this independent of the SERPO. I have had a discussion with people who worked in the Reagan administration, and they confirmed there was this meeting at Camp David, March 6th to 8th, 1981. All of these people from Intel were there, and that is when Reagan was given the first briefing about extraterrestrial biological entities of various types. And they showed him that there were quadloids, there were archaloids, there were hepaloids, there were trontaloids, that's trontaloids, and the top one were ebens. What is the difference in fast EBEN is an acronym for extraterrestrial biological entity, and those are the gray ones that have a head shaped like a pear. The chin is curved, and there's something very important about this. The head is larger in ratio to what a human's would be to our chin. So it's like this coming down and the chin curves. There are also grays that go like this and their chins come to a point, and that's what's on the cover of Whitley Strieber's book that affected the whole world. Those are very different. They're very different beings. They have different uh, priorities. And I stress this just to show that for so long, because we've been denied the truth by uh, governments, we just had grays, blondes, tall, white that that's it right like there's three three candy types in a box it's so complex it's so much more complex and that learning what each one of these different variations what vested interest do they have in earth and humans is the key and that is kept so close to everybody's vest so in this in this issue of presenting to Reagan on March 6th to 8th, 1981, here are five extraterrestrial civilizations that we know about and that we may work with some, but the bottom of the list, the trinoloids this is where it's a very dramatic transcript that they say to President Reagan, these are terrible, insidious insects. And Reagan, well, what what are we gonna do about it? Well, we are studying, sir, but they camouflage themselves here on earth as blonde, blue-eyed humans.
0: This creates an issue.
1: And, and I'm sure you guys, your minds are flexible. When I first read that in the context of World War II I thought, is it possible that the World War II environment is the same today, it's just come back around in a different way?
0: Right. Now, w- with that said, um, before, I, I did want to ask you, leading from World War II to what's what was allegedly called uh, New Schwabenland or Agartha and all of this, before we get into that and the alleged, um, I-, I would love to, to ask you about uh, the pyramid and Antarctica and all of this, but are there any animals other than cattles that you have found over the course of many decades of your incredible career to be of any significance? that where you've said okay there's you know we have the cattles but I notice every so often you know for example a, a, a wolf or something like this ends up mutilated
1: every domestic animal that you can think of and name has been found bloodlessly mutilated cattle oh. horses sheep goats pigs rabbits The list, goats and sheep, I mean, uh, everywhere, all of every domestic animal that you can think of has been found bloodlessly mutilated with the ear, eye, tongue, jaw, and genitals removed. Now jump to wild animals. One of the first meetings that I had with the Forest Service at Channel 7 back in 79, uh, I had called them up and said, I wanted to know if they had wild animals that were subjected to the same bloodless excisions, and they said yes, and so I went over to an office and I got to see a series, it was deer, it was elk, then later I learned there's reindeer, marmots, foxes, pythons, all bloodlessly mutilated. If you, if you went through all of my, what is it now, it's about 3,000 uh, earthfiles.com reports, And all the mutilation reports I have done since 1999 are under Real X files, which is behind a paywall, because that's the only way that I could ever do reports showing all of the photos. It has to be behind a paywall. That's how Real X files came about. In the Real X files, I think it's 163 or 263. It's a tremendous number of reports with all kinds, I have, uh, it, it talk about a valuable, I guess you would say, uh, a, a valuable history of animal mutilations of what I've covered are in earthfiles.com, uh, the Real X Files. And there you can see, I mean, the half cats. Uh, when the half cats started, it, the the first one that I was called about and really hit me It was a veterinarian reporting it in Bothell, Washington, and the whole state of Washington, Oregon, Northern California into Idaho. That area has had Sasquatch half cats mutilations of the kazoo and the vet on those first cases. She had taken X-rays and here you've got as clear as can be. Here is the front half of the cat. Here is the back half of the cat, the skeleton. That's what you're looking at. And in the middle, she found and the, who else would have done this, but somebody who was trained. That's why you need really trained people. She put the two together. She only had two halves of the uh, cat. But when she put them up on the x-ray, she realized, and she did measurement, three inches absolute to the millimeter, three inches of tissue was missing between the front half and the back half. And so the pictures that my website show those two x rays and her comments where because she did this careful work, she found where did that three inch perfectly even slice go is another thing in terms of photographs all the way back to 1975 and 76 in Montana. This was the Cascade County Sheriff's Office uh, in the area of where we have Minuteman missiles and uh, sheriff. uh, It was Deputy Sheriff Keith Wolverton. And uh, it was a rancher who called up the sheriff's department. Keith answered the phone. I talked with him directly about this and he said the sheriff said I was going hunting. I had my 30-06 rifle. I came around a bend, and here was this at least eight-foot tall. I first, I thought it was a bear standing up on its haunches, and then I realized it, it, it. I don't know what it is, and he shot. And this huge creature disappeared in a flash of light. Those words were copied down in the original official ranchers offense report in the Cascade County Sheriff's Office, I've seen it with my own eyes, interviewed Keith Wolverton, and it's in my book, disappeared in a flash of light. And then Keith Wolverton and I and others in law enforcement have had many discussions about how can something that is biological disappear in a flash of light, right? Today, there is a new word that has been applied through Pentagon sources and science sources for me. And probably only I say this word only really started being used two years ago. I think that's fair, but it's been part of the landscape. It's just that we we're like babies in the universe and we don't have a clue, right? And the word is hollow form. You will hear now that the tronoloids can appear to humans as anything they want, and human minds and eyes will not be able to discern a tronoloid if it were six feet from you because they project perfect holoforms. They can project the holoform of a human, a cactus, a cat, it doesn't matter. They have complete control on the, what is a holoform, which is taken from holo, holographic. Right. And if for those of you listening who have been to Disney World and you've gone to where they project the dancers on the ballroom and all of that in the, the holographic projection, you and here you're, you're there, you've paid to come in and see it so you know what you're looking at, but it's really stunning when you watch humans dancing and they look so real, and you have to keep telling yourself, this is projected photon light.
0: If I, okay, yeah.
1: that's a Disney. Well, if you're a Tronoloid with their ability to control time, their ability to control photons, their ability to mask themselves with holoform projections, you're out of the league of humanity understanding any
0: of it. I couldn't agree more. And to add to that, Linda, I do want to say for the audience, for those that will be watching or listening uh, when this is uploaded, that I can say with confidence, based on my personal research, that there are today in the last, interesting you say last two years, because it seems like the last two to five years in my research, there have been very solidified, substantiative academic papers from laboratories all over the world and from professors all over the world that claim with certainty, not with speculation, with certainty that this type of holomorphic uh, genetic alteration is real. And not only that, but many of the things we've been discussing in this entire conversation, there are academic papers to substantiate a very, very large amount, if not all of what we've been discussing here. Um, With that said, Riel, did you want to jump in for a a question, I believe? Sure,
1: thanks. Yeah, I've got I got a whole page of notes already. I've got tons of questions, but specifically on the topic of mutilations, are there any circumstances where we found human mutilations, where it was a bloodless, trackless, you know, human corpse? I can tell you two, meaning that the only two that I have uh, what I would call evidentiary material. There are a lot of anecdotal stories. But when it comes to something as serious as bloodless human mutilations, I feel like we should be talking about what evidence or lack of evidence. Um, The strongest case was, would have been um, in, it was probably 1993, because I know I was in Philadelphia then. And I was working with Dr. John Altshuler, who was a pathologist, hematologist, had his own lab in Denver, extremely successful man, uh, brilliant, uh, kept getting degrees, he never sat on one degree, he kept getting degrees and evolving. And I got a phone call. Uh, I believe it was the sheriff's office, and because people knew to call me, and it was... Phone call. We have found a a body, nude, of a male, in a lake. And ear missing, eye, jaw flesh, rectum. Uh, have you got any cases that might be like this? Mm. And I called Doctor Altschuler. I told him. He said. I think the most important thing we can do is I want to call the coroner because the coroner and I, as a pathologist, he should be able to talk to me and I to him. And he said, so get me the number. And I did. By that point in 1993, Dr. Altshuler had been working as a pathologist hematologist since the early 1960s extremely detailed, very respected. This is a person who uh, was absolutely perfect for trying to get into the details of the mutilations. And he wasn't afraid of it. That was a big thing. A lot of people are terrified of this. To me, it, we can't do that. We cannot turn away from something that we don't understand and say it's too spooky. And therefore let's put it under the rug. You've got to understand it in order to have the courage to keep going, to find out what is happening. Thank you. It's true. And so here's the shock. Dr. Altshuler calls, introduces himself to the coroner where the body had been taken And when Dr. Altshuler said, I have been working with an investigative reporter on bloodless, trackless animal mutilations that in the pattern of removed tissue sounds like the man in the lake. And I would like to be able to talk with you. The coroner slammed the phone down on Dr. Altshuler. I'm sharing that with you to say, one, that proves That everything that Dr. Altshuler said to that coroner, the coroner knew, right? And somebody had told the coroner, you don't talk about any of this. That's another reason for the slam down. Otherwise, there is no, as Dr. Altshuler said to me, he called me right after the the coroner hung up on him. He said, in a normal civilized world of my work, why would any coroner slam a telephone down to a hematologist with his own laboratory doing work for the state of Colorado, the city of Denver. I mean, okay. So that was where we decided that that case, it was, I believe it was in Missouri. It was on a lake, it was up in a mountain. We think that was truly in this category of the animals. The other one is not as long a story but in some ways is more haunting and I've never been able to understand this one. I got a call from uh, the Royal Canadian Mount of Police because I had been talking with their their investigator of animal mutilations in the Calgary and Alberta region when I started working on a strange harvest. And the head of uh, the Calgary investigation was Lynn Lauber. I remember him. And we were comparing notes about certain things that to this day, like, I can tell you this, a molar on, an, on the jaw, all mutilations have jaw strip. But the Canadians, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they were the ones who realized that the gap there's no, a, a natural gap. You can look at this in any photo. There are natural gaps in a normal jaw of a cow. And some people might look at it and say, oh, the teeth are gone. No, it's just a part of the jaw. But if you come back in here and there's any missing gap, a tooth has been taken out. That's what the Royal Canadian Man of Police in Canada were documenting, that they were finding molars, were removed, no tissue touched, no bleeding, nothing, just the whole tooth is out. So Lynn Lauber was a trusted colleague and I was a trusted reporter. And this is how I learned about this. They got a call that a car was parked on the side of a road in a rural area, it was in Calgary. They sent out investigators. He said, as they approached the car, they they parked someplace to get off the freeway because the car was literally in the shoulder. So part of the car was on the road and they parked and now they're walking toward the car and they can see the profile of a woman just as clear as day in the driver's side. And as they approach, she is so perfect and has on what appears to be valuable jewelry, they can't quite believe what, what are they approaching. And when they took a hold of the car door, it opened. And when they looked, she was uh, beautiful jewelry, I remember they're saying it was a silk blouse under a jacket, very refined heels and nothing else in the car. But she's dead. So they move the body to have the autopsy. And now the medical people are having to undo the silk blouse. And they reported, I believe it was her right breast. I think so. There was a perfect 360 degree excision. The entire right breast was gone. There was no bleeding. There was no fluid. This this is the part I remember. I can hear Lynn Lauber. Linda, it was a silk blouse. And there was nothing on the silk blouse. But when they did this, the entire breast is removed. No blood, no fluid. And he said, how the hell do you do this?
0: How do you explain that?
1: Okay. Molecular extraction. The missing hearts in the cattle led to discussions, one that I had with a man at the Rose Medical Center in Denver at the time. And I did uh, work with him for a strange harvest where we did, uh, if you took a laser, which was rudimentary at that time, nobody was doing uh, laser surgery, Uh, but you take a laser, how long would it take to do a three inch circle and I got turkeys and chickens and we got hospital okay. And we compared how long to do this with a laser of electrocautery, a scalpel, all, all these comparisons. And while we were doing that production that is in A Strange Harvest, I said to uh doctor, her last name was Miller, I said, how? The very first time I met with Sheriff Tex Graves, He told me about going out with a veterinarian and that a whole heart could be missing from inside the chest, but there was no surgery on the outside of the body. The pericardium was left intact in the chest, no blood, no fluid, no holes in the the pericardium. And and Dr. Miller had the same answer. It has to be molecular extraction, which I'd never even heard anybody say at that time. And so he said, there are some of us because he was working in laser research at the Rose Medical Center. He said, there are some of us who say, and this was 79, he said in 50 years, which would be about where we are now going forward. He said, in 50 years, I think that there's going to be molecular extraction surgery. And how would it work? Everything will be done by frequency. You will have a beam Let's say that it's your gallbladder. So the beam will come. It is after only one density frequency. It is a gallbladder density frequency, nothing else in the body. It will go through skin, cartilage, bone, anything, and it will only extract the molecules that it has been programmed to extract. Apparently, We are in a world now that is moving toward molecular extraction surgery. There was not even much of a concept of it in 1979 outside of this doctor at Rose Medical Center. And once you began putting all these pieces together, the missing breast, it would have been taken by molecular extraction that would have gone through the silk without doing anything to the silk, would have gone through her skin at whatever depth that the ETs, or if that's what it was, would program for this molecular extraction. And it would be a perfect, just like the heart and other organs. And that's another part you guys should hear. In 1980, that summer, There was um, it was a one of those um, magazines sold having to do with sex and all kinds of stuff. Uh, Maybe it'll come to me. Playboy. It it was a not Playboy. It was another one like it. Okay. Uh, Maybe it'll come to me, but anyway, it was not like a, a a medical journal or something. It was just one of the we'll call it social uh, media uh, stuff bulk? at the time. Um, maybe it'll pop in, but nevertheless, this is the part that's important. The report was an interview with a man who had worked for the FBI and was in the, I think it was, he, he, I think he was in Santa Fe, might have been Trinidad, but anyway, in New Mexico. And he got a $19,000 grant, which was at that time in 1979, was a, a lot more money than today, 19000 He had a $19,000 grant to do an investigation in the state of New Mexico uh, for or with an association with the FBI, about animal mutilations. Rommel, Kenneth Rommel. Kenneth Rommel, retired from the FBI, uh, working on this $19,000, and it's in my film, A Strange Harvest, too. And he sat across the desk with my cameraman running, and he said, There's nothing to this. I am going to prove, I am going to prove it is nothing but predator. At which point I know that the gauntlet has been thrown down, that I'm now not in a normal interview, that I now have somebody sitting across from me who is supposed to be retired FBI using taxpayers' dollars for an investigation of animal mutilations. I am a professional, and Emmy and Peabody awarded uh, investigative reporter who is sitting across from this man who then throws down the gauntlet. I am going to prove, he used that verb. It's in my film, A Strange Harvest. I'm going to prove there's nothing but predator. From that point on, his so-called that's what he's going to do ended up in this social magazine in which Kenneth Rommel and a sheriff in Arkansas are doing the same tone. They're saying, it's nothing but predator. Go away. There's nothing here. So when I see finally see the actual, uh, this actual report that was done. And I'm reading that the sheriff in Benton, I think it was Bentonville in Arkansas, is saying that he paid for a cow from a rancher, put it out in a pasture, set up night vision cameras, and they captured a crow walking on the carcass. There's your proof. There's nothing to these animal mutilations except predators, crows, wolves, coyotes. So you got two liars that come together in a report that goes out to the public, and I am the only reality check on this situation. They really made me mad because they knew they were lying. What was it? 20? would have been almost 20 years after the, the, that in 79, 79 to 89, 99. Yeah, would have been 20 years later. I'm in Philadelphia. So honest to God, this is what happened. The phone rings, this male voice, Linda, my name is Dr. French. I have been wanting to talk to you ever since the report about are having a crow or birds being explanation for the Arkansas mutilations. He said at the very time that was reported that they had a a night camera, and that a bird was uh, put out by the sheriff's office as the answer. He said, I want you to know, I wanted to call you then. But he said, I don't know, I could have lost my job. But he said, exactly at the same time that they were putting out the night cameras. That same sheriff gave me seven, eight, nine mutilated bodies of animals to investigate in my veterinarian clinic. Linda, I was opening up animals in which internal organs were missing and there was no surgery on the outside. And he started delineating. He said, I'm reading to you today. This is 20, 20 some years later. Right. I'm reading from my own reports that went to that sheriff's office. No bladder, no trachea. All of these organs that were missing inside of the animals that the sheriff brought to this veterinarian and the veterinarian said that what I was dealing with was incomprehensible.
0: Wow, well... Again, thank you so much, and I know that our time is almost up, and with that said, I um, announced on social media about a month back as of the time we are recording this, when we had scheduled this, um, and I thank you again so much, that you would be coming on the show, and I believe one of, if not the top request for a question had to do with the underground pyramid in Antarctica. Um, By chance, do you happen to have any potential updates on that pertaining to uh, what these pyramids... um, function purpose or your sources um anything of the sort i think our audience including the entire community would love to hear because i've been doing my own personal research and without a doubt in my humble perspective there is a there's a there there that it seems to be attempted to be covered up constantly
1: okay let's start with there it isn't a pyramid what i did the work with spartan one spartan one Navy SEAL, absolutely in the upper, upper, upper echelon of Navy SEALs. I know for a fact that because of the work that he did in Antarctica and other work, he was invited to a very famous place that would be on the East Coast, that would be considered the center of political power. This this SEAL did incredible things. His assignment was to go to an underground facility that was two miles below the Beardmore Glacier. He had to go in first a helicopter, and then they went to half tracks to get to the area. He said, unless you had the latitude and longitude specific, you would never be able to find. With the latitude, longitude, as he approached, he began to realize, because he had obviously been briefed and understood. Solid black, like think of onyx or obsidian, made like an octagon. It's an eight-sided, perfect geometric figure. Get eight in your mind. about 23 feet high, he had been briefed that on the inside of what would be this octagon would be a 17 by 18 by 23 foot door. That's hard to imagine. This is like a big, huge rectangular mass and the only thing, as he said, he told me, he said, I, as I stood there, I could not believe that what they had told me to do would work, which was to just take his index finger and go to a very specific place and touch it, which he did. And the whole massive 17 by 18 by 23 mass came forward and he had to move out of the way. In total awe of what was happening. Then he goes through this octagonal structure. He's now on the other side. He moves to a specific point, having been briefed about what to do. And the door comes back. And what he is seeing, facing him, coming toward him is the black sun. It is an ancient ancient symbol on this planet but it is what hitler picked to represent the nazis during world war ii it is the 12 armed 290 degree angles at the end with an overlap in the middle that the black sun is staring at him there he turns around and you got to remember he's been briefed he's following instructions he's got things to do because his job was to go in and extract, which is what seals are paid to do a lot, extract a scientist who had been there for a long time studying thousands of symbols, language, every, uh, and and these walls uh, were uh, 20, 30, 40 feet high, all made of the same solid, was it basalt, was it, Uh, Or was it something that the ETs made that it was black? And he said he had been instructed, he had a laser. These measures where you can go like this with a laser, you could do it to a ceiling is this high. This is measuring. And he took the, the laser and he started going into all these incredible thousands of glyphs. And, and the scientists he was there to take out, that's what he was studying. Every single one of the symbols and glyphs were exactly the same depth. Every single one. And when he hooked up with the scientists who had been there studying this, we'll call it language, that was both hieroglyphic looking, sort of Mayanish looking, sort of Sanskrit looking, so it was like, It was like pieces of things, but not any one language. And that's why this scientist was there studying it. And the scientists, they all concurred. These are all exactly. And I remember it was something like 2.758. And then they came to the same conclusion that I said to him, have you ever heard of self-activating software? And he said not in those words. I said back in the 2012 uh, and maybe a little earlier, I started doing reporting about what were called dragonfly drones. It was a phenomena that suddenly appeared people were taking photographs and video of these things in the sky and government people said that wasn't ours but they didn't know what it was and they would disappear and but they all had symbols and a leaker out of Palo Alto, who was working underground in a Department of Defense, deep, deep, multiple layered um, laboratory in Palo Alto, disguised to look like a library covered with trees. He got to me and to Les at the coast website, the two of us were sent an amazing document. All of them, I'm telling you, everything is at our files. I have not kept anything back on this. It's all at our files. And it was a document about these dragonfly drones, the language that the language covering the dragonfly drones was self activating software. I had the good fortune of being able to have one phone conversation with Isaac, is the man who distributed this, he called himself. And I asked him, What is your definition of self activating software? He disappeared completely after this phone call and, and this release. And I'm so grateful that I got to talk with him one on one because I think this is an incredible concept. It's probably part of all of the ETs we're dealing with. This is what he told me. He said, imagine that you have an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper on your desk and you want to put X information into it and you want it to go across uh, Philadelphia to a building on the Delaware River and you want it to go to office XB and you want the person to reply and you need this reply back to you at 7 a.m. on blah. Everything I just said to you will be incorporated into the molecular structure of the paper. The paper will not have to be handled. You will think what you want to say staring at the paper. The paper will then take off as self-activating software. It will know how to go through walls. It will know how to get to the office on the Delaware River. You don't have to be concerned because what the ETs do with molecular transitions, holoforms, and being able to embed binary self activating software. This is what they do everywhere. And Linda, all of those deeply engraved structures in Egypt and Mesopotamia. It's the same thing, Linda, it's self activating software on the pyramids on all of it. Well, jump then to uh, the seal. Deep underground, two miles. He goes to get this scientist who's living what I've just described, trying to understand it. And the scientist tells him he doesn't. He's not ready to leave. That he wants to understand more because this is this is definitely not human. This is definitely some, from someplace else with tremendous advancement. And The the scientist tells Spartan One about how in Mesopotamia, the same thing that they are dealing with two miles down in Antarctica, that the symbols that are carved into the stone of what we stand back and say, oh, it's a pyramid, it's an obelisk, whatever it is, we don't understand that those have been operating with self-activating software, 40,000 years, and that the scientists told Spartan One, the Sphinx is older than 30,000 years. And now just recently, there have been other estimates that the Sphinx might be 40,000 years, 45,000 years. Well, Spartan One in 2003 was getting information in in that area that I think is an insight to how much our government knows. And they probably have some way of getting information out of these Mesopotamian self-activating software. But if they don't, what is the self-activating software in big structures all over this planet, above ground, below ground and two miles down in Antarctica doing in July of 2022.
0: Well, I want to say that for the audience that, are, that are, is more interested in the scientific angle of things, maybe I'm incorrect here, but to my knowledge, the closest thing that we can connect to um, something coming to life, if, if you will, I use those terms a little bit loosely, but would be something called topology in physics wh- and also which creates depth and also I believe this uh, may allude to uh, the project carrot document to what um, legitimacy the entire document may have I'm not sure it is of my personal understanding that however it is fairly accurate um, and carrot stands for commercial application reverse engineering um, reverse extraterrestrial technology or reverse engineering technology but.
1: Yeah, it was application for, allegedly, the civilian population is how they got the money to do the research, that they would learn from the extraterrestrial technology, this would be the deal with Congress or whoever was providing the money, and then that they would do uh, applications from the carrot technology for the general public. The problem is those have been the trade-offs between Congress and the five-sided building in Washington for a long time. And the truth is that the real technologies are really kept back and nobody has access. And then a few things filter out. And right now, I personally think that the most exciting thing I've been exposed to are real people who have been in real aerial vehicles. Right. The... USS Curtis LeMay, uh, the Roscoe Helen Ketter, uh, the Vandenberg, those are real, and that they can move a craft light years in a few hours, because they are, uh, they, the they is us, our space force, working with the tall whites and the Nordics. We're not, we're not out in space by ourselves it's been stressed on me no 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 humans are really babies but that the tall whites and the nordics have been helping us and that they have been teaching us and that we are now doing the Alcubierre warp drive that's the tunnel and the tunneling that word it is because what we'll call the space-time frab- fabric of our universe it is built as if it has tunnels, even if it's at an atomic and a, or a molecular level. And that these advanced beings know how to transform into that molecular level. And then at faster than the speed of light, it's entanglement.
0: Right. You
1: know where you're going. Uh, entanglement, you can get communication instantly, but tunneling, the, the one, uh, and I've had this checked by somebody who uh, still works in Washington, um, one of the ratios that I was given was, you can go 50 light years in five Earth days, five 24-hour Earth days. 50 light years in five days! i mean i want to sign up to have a life that is 500 years long that i can go out on these craft and keep reporting to the cosmic news right. 500 right. i want to I go on these god to see all of the different stars and the planets and there are so many civilizations i can't prove this but i have been told by two people that we have logs we have cataloging with the help of the tall whites and the Nordics, and that we are now operating, that in this, we'll call it the Earth solar system, it is a very small gaseous piece. The Milky Way galaxy is way big up here, smaller here, and we're in this little teeny stretch, but that in that little teeny stretch of the Milky Way galaxy are logged catalogued 168 intelligent civilizations on other solar systems. 168 just in our little part of the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy is only one of three trillion is the current estimate of galaxies in this universe.
0: Right. And I would like to thank you, Linda, so very kindly. I know our time is up. I did want to say one last thing for the audience to ensure that for those interested in searching it up, I was incorrect about five, ten minutes ago. Carrot stands for Commercial Applications Research of Extraterrestrial Technology to my knowledge um so i again i want to thank you linda so very much but before you go could you please tell our audience whether they're listening on uh, audio or watching on video where and how your work can be found and i again i want to thank you truly from the bottom of my heart for your tireless i mean per, pursuit is is a, is an understatement in my opinion you haven't stopped so i mean how thank could you. you right I
1: could, exposed to all of this right. i just Uh, I'm not afraid of it. I am excited. And I feel that the greatest thing that needs to happen on this planet is for this entire homo sapien population to finally be told the whole truth. And it might cut down some of the wars. I agree. Um, Every Wednesday night, starting at 730 Mountain Time and going to 830 in all time zones around the world, we get sometimes 56 countries tuning in uh 7 to 8 30 i am doing the earth files youtube channel in which i am trying to bring each wednesday night for that hour like i pull a thread from what i did the week before and i expand it into the the program that usually takes about 20 or 30 minutes and then i go to q a and so it's uh, some some new piece of all of this and Q&A. And I have been working through very complex, fascinating information that is now coming from military and aerospace sources, I think, because we are getting close, finally. If it's April of 2023, and they use the James Webb telescope, I will be cheering. I hope that's not much later than that. Then there is my Huge earthfiles.com website, which is www.earthfiles.com. And there are 3,000 some in depth reports that I have done since 1999 in Real X Files Science, the Environment. And if you just go to Real X Files and you see the entire archive, a lot of people have told me that they've just been stunned and that they have spent weeks getting through real X-Files. And I can say, if you want to see real classic, multiple animal mutilations covering a whole lot of different things, it's there because it has to be behind a paywall, real X-Files. The others are freely accessible. Um, uh, Then we are now in the process of, we're going to have a pod, Earth Files podcast channel which will be some audio and we're going to do a re uh, it's going to be like all of my conference presentations, which many of them are quite complex, but they're more relevant today than they were when I did them. And uh, so we're trying to expand so that all of the work will be accessible through you click on www.earthfiles.com. You're at Earth Files. Right there at the top is the link to my Earth Files YouTube channel on Wednesdays. How to get my books, how to get my documentaries. It's all there. There is an Earth Files shop. And then there are all of these. Uh, I guess I want to say that the Real X Files Index at earthfiles.com is a profoundly deep look at how many subjects from 1999 to 2022 and evolving, and that you can take earth files and then you can start doing other searches that never were possible before. So I'm trying to have my galaxy, (laughs) my earth files galaxy be accessible in video and books and conferences and
0: Well, Linda, I want to thank you so very kindly once again from the bottom of my heart for coming on and I hope and I really do think that our audience would love to have you back whenever you would be uh, available and truly thank you, thank you, thank you. So to everyone that tuned in, whether it's on audio or video, again, uh, we're at uh, youtube.com slash generation Z podcast, or you can type that in on YouTube, uh, Apple podcast, Spotify, and of course, um, patreon.com slash generation Z, which is so great graciously how we can keep the show going. So Linda, thank you so much again, and we'll catch you all next time. Thank you, everybody.
1: Cheers to you for doing the homework.
0: Thank you so much.